Hello and welcome to the Lively Faith Podcast. I am your host, the Reverend Nathan Stomberg, Rector of Holy Communion Anglican Church in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. And today I'm joined by my co-host, the Reverend Mark Galloway. Mark, it's good to be with you again discussing pleasure, my friend. all matters of importance here. Uh, you may also have noticed we've got a new gig here. We've got a new studio and uh, we're excited to be here. Change of scenery can see all the books on the wall, which I've definitely read, every <laughs> single one of them. I just really want to show you all how smart we are. <laughs> so today we're going to be digging into uh, some batters which are really pressing on the world stage, of course, before we get started. Please take a minute to share the podcast with a friend. Uh, if you've been touched by it, uh, it means a lot to us, and word of mouth is by far the best way that we are able to grow between that and, of course, God's grace. So, Mark, today we're really going to be discussing responding to world events as a Christian. For anyone now, especially by the time this episode has come out, uh, the acceleration of world events, of chaos, of war, of violence in the world is really just mind-boggling. I think really going all the way back to the Russia-Ukraine conflict and even before, but of course, with events coming out of Israel with the terror attacks by Hamas against the Jewish people there and what is probably the most brutal act of terror witnessed by my generation for sure since 9-11 and of course the worst atrocity against the Jewish people since the Holocaust. It's really beyond words, I think, the evil uh, and the strength of the imagery that, that we're witnessing. I, I haven't personally sought out some of the pictures that have come out of there, but uh, of course we, we continue to pray for, for peace and the protection of, of innocence everywhere. But I think most would agree in this in this era in which we live, that we are entering a new era of global geopolitical unrest and instability. And there's much going on for us, for people to be anxious about. So the goal of this conversation really is how should Christians think about war, global unrest, and evil across the world? Because that's, I think, going to be ever-present at the front of our minds, and by the time this episode comes out, we don't know how things will have changed, but certainly certainly they will have changed and evolved. So I'll kick it off there if there's anything you'd like to add to that. Well, uh, the first thing I would say is that there's nothing new under the sun here, right? And I, I think we, not, not that we want to be able to say there's something new under the sun. As Jesus said, you always have wars amongst you, right? But I'm, you know, I'm always the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in context, the world's bigger, right? At the same time, it's smaller because of technology. But um, there's been world conflict going on ever since the beginning, ever since uh, Cain and Abel, even. Uh, in previous generations, people weren't even aware of what was going on in different parts of the world, that people were killing each other, and genocide was going on, and atrocities. We're, we're aware of it at such a higher level. Uh, I mean, you only have to go back to the second 
World War generation, they weren't even aware of the atrocities of the Holocaust for a long time, right? Even though uh, the great Armenian genocide had taken place mm -hmm. during World War One, so uh, that doesn't lessen the the grossness of what's going on and the, the fact that it's it's right on your cell phone. But a corollary to your point there is our recent conflicts really are the first within the smartphone generation and with the ubiquity of those right. and with social media. Right, right. Yeah, so somebody my age and older, you know, we, we remember uh, reports every night in Vietnam, for instance, would come across and they weren't always without um, an agenda uh, from, from the media. But um, so it, it's not that it's new. It's just that it's, it's, it is escalating, though. It's escalating because we're so tribal, and we're becoming more tribal as nations. And as not just international law and order breaks down, these things are inevitable. And the weaker America becomes, the more this is going to happen. Mm. And the more indebted we are, the more it's going to happen. We have less ability to equip ourselves. Uh, we've made tremendous mistakes uh, in just the last two years since the Ukrainian-Russian um, conflict with giving away our arms. Uh, we, we've, we're down missiles that are going to take us years to rebuild. So mm. if stuff really goes haywire, we're not prepared to do no. A ton of things. So there's so many things that are involved just from a, a sociological, sociopolitical standpoint without bringing in theology even. We can have a, hours of conversation about. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible what's going on. What always strikes me about these things, about Americans, is that your point is, you know, young people now are seeing it on their phones, so they're protesting, right, you and I would, would agree with much of the protesting, right? But um, when it doesn't affect them, when there's atrocities going on at different places in the world in the last 20 years, it doesn't affect the American or in their pocketbook, they don't really care, right? No. This, in the Sudan, for 30 years, they were killing Christians, right? Nobody really cared. Oh, Somalia, right? Black Hawk Down, the movie yeah. Black Hawk Down, right? Um Americans have totally amnesia, so we, we're like we we have this like moral eruption about some issue, but uh, we don't really care that the Uyghurs are being persecuted and being eliminated by the Chinese right, right now. So, and they're Muslims, yeah, right. So there's this utter inconsistency to the American psyche about about justice, especially in Judeo-Christian understanding of justice and about how a just God really works and what God. God is, is no discriminator of men, as the Acts of the Apostles says. And so um, there's always this disproportionate reaction to something that we as Christians and certainly as theologians have to be able to ra react to rationally, mm -hmm. especially to Christians and to the people we're called to shepherd, so that we're not caught up in the fray of just endless throwing innuendos and misinformation out about everything that's going on out there, because that would be an hourly process. <laughs> Absolutely. At this point. So. Not to mention, so you mentioned there's usually a knee-jerk overreaction, and then especially in the West, there's a snapback to whatever your political priors were. 
you put your blinders back on. And as Christians, we need to be equally sensitive to that as well, that we're always being called to the narrow way as far as the Christian mindset and the Christian worldview. So one of the reasons we're talking about these things is so that we can think these through uh, with our audience and then also be able to better articulate the the Christian worldview throughout these issues and applying natural law first principles to these ways of thinking and to these world events. Yes. It's really it's as simple as uh, the product. Um, uh, oh, excuse me. The, it's out of my head. Um, the Luke in parable. Jesus, you know, the prodigal son. No, the other one. The guy is uh, beat up on the side of the road. Oh, the good uh, Samaritan. Good Samaritan. Thank you. And, uh, you know, we forget Samaritans were hated, hated, yeah. hated, hated, right? They were ethnically hated by Jews. And of course, the parable is the Jew helps the man, pays his bills, because he sees him totally as a human being, mm-hmm. as, as somebody created in the image of God, not that he's a Samaritan. And it's just, that parable really surmises everything we should be about, right? Um, I don't see that <laughs> going on, right? And even in the reaction of Christians and, uh, uh, and certainly governments and, and, and peoples ideological just um, insanity about uh, some of this stuff. Right. I think so. um, I'm just going to follow the flow of conversation here. Really one of the first things that comes to mind as we, as we talk about uh, thinking through things from a Christian perspective, we, we need to be, we are stewards of, of the truth that God has revealed to us. And in order to be faithful stewards of the truth, we need to hold ourselves to a standard of intellectual honesty and be able to engage with these different ideas, even when they're uncomfortable. And so the first example that comes to mind, again, most recently, in light of uh, Israel's war with Hamas, is the Muslim question. And mm-hmm. it's the same debate that roared into American political discourse post 9-11, where you you have people who snap into two camps, right and left, both making their own errors, where on one side you have an inability and a hesitance to say that radical fundamentalist Islam is given to either Islamofascism or the rise of terrorist groups, and instead you want to you want to rationalize and attribute to them a mode of Western thinking which they absolutely do not have. And on the other hand, you have camps of people uh, either within conservatism or really more so, I would say, on the political right, who you really just want to, you're tempted to demonize and group together a whole group of people and a whole world religion in a way that isn't true. And uh, you spoke at the, of this at great length a um, decade ago and in the decade prior to that. You think about Muslims and you... If you ask the American populace, especially during the height of a lot of this 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 fever pitch of the conversation post 9-11, well, well, where do most Muslims come from? And what, 99% of people would say, oh, well, they're all Arab. And that, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Right. It couldn't be more harmful. The majority of the greatest concentration, the greatest proportion of, uh, of Muslims, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is uh, 
that is Indonesia. Southeast Asia. Yeah. Southeast Asia. Yeah. And so really the minority North come from Africa. Yeah. come from Arab Arab descent. And yeah. just one one great example of how we need to hold ourselves uh, as Christians, as thinking Christians, to a standard of being able to discern between uh, what's actually going on here. Our our defense of natural law of first principles has to come has to be rooted in just that, in, in God's revealed truth and his revealed word. And that means speaking to the both the worldview issues that there are and there are many ways to dovetail it here. There are there are groups of people, terrorist groups, some associated with Islam, who do not think the way that Westerners do and have absolutely no compatibility or willingness to compromise with, with Christians and with, with Jews and really with the West as a whole because they value death and we value life. And no amount of reasoning or rationalization on our part is going to change that. And on the other hand, being able to separate our political priors from yes. the defense of life, from the defense of first principles, and um, and and really the the guarding of innocent life across the world. So, right. a lot of different directions to go there. Yeah, exactly right. And again, it, American um, speak when they should keep their mouth shut until they actually learn something, right? <laughs> about reality and history and uh, the, the social political reality of the Islamic world, which is not uniformed, right? And even in, from the religious perspective, uh, Christians do this, they do this with Judaism, uh, constantly with the ES teaching. They're like, well, Judaism's like Christianity, it has denominations. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Judaism's not anything like Christianity. It's totally other. Judaism is, is the following of individuals to rabbis. That's what Judaism is. Islam's the same way. There's no uniformed Islam. No. And it gets its own twist in each geographical, socio-cultural area in which it exists. And it, and it gets laid in its interpretation thereof in those places. So it's not like Christianity, which has this long-rooted tradition of um, morality and all of these things that systematically build theologically. So... Um, but the average Americans become so anti-Christian themselves, mm. or at least ignorant to Christianity, that they can't make any. To them, they're all they're all like equal, right? And so uh, they can't just take Islam at its value, face value, at its word. So when, let's say the Quran. Mm -hmm. so we're going to take the Quran and the New Testament and talk about how each document treats human rights, the dignity of life, and so forth. You couldn't be any further apart. Right. Right. And that's just a fact. You know, you're not, you know, I'm not here speaking as a fascist, anti-Islamic person by saying that. That's, this is what this Quran says about, when, Quran doesn't even tell you if women can go to heaven. <laughs> Never mind. It's, yeah, it's, it's just a fact, right? So all of these things, but they don't matter in the political diatribe that goes on mm -hmm. in the country, right? So so the, the theological piece of it very really almost never comes into the reality. So we even, you know, our politicians on the right, they they always end up qualifying their comments about anything that happens 
uh, around terrorism that comes from an Islamic origins or cell is like, mm -hmm. Islam is a religion of peace. I don't find that in history, that Islam is a religion of peace. No, the evidence isn't there. Right. So it's like, it's not really a true statement. In fact, Islam's goal, stated goal in the Quran is to rid the world of Christians and Jews. And it really helps to look at it comparatively from a historical perspective. You look at the first 300 years of Christian experience, and they weren't in power, were they? No. And yet, you had 12 guys who were tasked with spreading the gospel, sharing the love of Christ, which caused the explosion in the spread of Christianity. And they were all being martyred right. by, the, by the Roman authorities. And then contrast that with the first 300 years through the spread of Islam. And how did Islam spread? It was through military conquest, which again is another forced another, conversion and yeah. forced conversion, which is another ignorance on the part of uh, most Westerners today. That actually, that Islam through through the initial spread of Islam, that constituted one of the greatest military campaigns in all of history, and took them right up to the Battle of Tours when on the footstep of Europe. Oh yes, and so we're also not talking about uh, people who have just lived in rocks and, and caves in the Middle East for their entire well, yeah. life. It's a totally uh, historically ignorant to think oh, about it that The way. height of their culture, it was unbelievable. Yes. Right? They are literally prehistoric compared to what the height of the culture was. Um, y yes. Um, so, so when something like hum the Hamas attacking Israel thing happens, as it has, you can't instantly educate all these people about reality, right? So it becomes yeah. unbelievable, as it is, is that um, uh, Palestine, which isn't a real place, right? The Gaza Strip is not a nation. It's part of Israel, right? Which is another just, again, if you, have the, you ask the average person, is Palestine a real place? Is it a nation? Yes, they yeah, would say it. Yeah, should say yes. No, it's, it's, a it, it's part of Israel, where people is with most primarily Muslims, Arabs are allowed to live, right? But it's it's not a separate nation, right? Um, so it's a terrorist attack. It's it's like it's, it's a, it would be like um, a modern Confederate state rebelling mm. against the United States, attacking mm. it. That would Good be analogy. Yeah, that's what it. So immediately when you have politicians and other and religious leaders and others saying it, Israel doesn't have a right to defend itself to retaliate against uh, a, really a terrorist group using Palestinians, they use them. They, they don't care about the Palestinians. Not not at all. Not They're at all. hiding behind them. They use them to attack the country that they want to destroy. Right. Uh, the first principle of Judeo-Christian understanding of sovereignty is every nation has a right to defend itself, especially against unprovoked attack. So, like that's that's where you start, not by saying, "Oh, they have the right, <laughs> they have the right to attack you because you did this and this and this in the past." And so, uh, and as you know, the whole chain of relationships behind what's going on: you know, Hamas is supported by Iran, which is backed by Russia. Which is backed by China, which right, and all of this stuff goes into it. And the fact that 
Israel is a democracy. It's not a dictatorship like everything else around them, even or a monarchy. Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Iraq, Iran is run by a political, by a, a state church, right? A fundamentalist religion. Um, they're, they're a parliamentary democracy. Arabs are free citizens in Israel. Yeah. A third of the parliament is yeah, made up of yes, Arabs. Yeah. Arabs sit in the That's parliament. That's what an apartheid state looks like. It's not an apartheid state at all, right? And uh, and it, it, in how it came into existence wasn't to oppress uh, Muslims living down on the strip of land that we now call Gaza. They were they're ethnic groups that all those other Arab nations don't want them. They could take them in at any point. They could take them in today. They could take all 2.3 million people off the Gaza Strip and bring them into Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Jordan, Syria, anywhere. They don't want any of those people because they don't care about them. They, they want to use them politically to their advantage. Absolutely. But they don't really care about their human rights. Well, and so Israel asked Egypt to open up its southern border with Gaza, and they said, nope, no, not touching that. They don't, so, so it's this endless um, lies and falsities that are going on about which even how those people even got there, right? And so that was British Palestine before the Second right. World War, right? And so United Nations establishes this place where the diaspora of Jews who just had, you know, millions, six, seven million of them murdered, and they were persona non grata in Russia and everywhere else. So there's this place that's established by the world, United Nations, and there happened to be these Arabs that lived down on the strip before you got into mm -hmm. the Sinai Desert, right? Um, but they didn't belong to any nation before that either. So it's all this history that it's just history, history and facts don't matter, right? Um, how a Westerner can't support Israel, I'm not saying that Israel never makes a political mistake like any other country, but they're a free country. Right. They're a democracy, right? Uh, I was reading a thing on Netanyahu. Oh, he's a dictator. And he, look, how, look how many times he's been prime minister. That's because he's been elected prime yeah. minister. Yeah, he's not forcing his way right. in It's there. like the great Disraeli, you know, Disraeli, you know, was, was prime yeah. minister four times in, in Great Britain. You know, it's not because he made himself prime minister. It's because his party got back in power, right? Again, Americans don't even understand how a parliamentary system works. No, they no not at all. They, they, don't even understand no how, they don't understand how Canada's system works. You know, so never mind trying to explain to them how what's going on in the politics of of um, Israel. The other thing, I you know, I, I went to Israel thirty years ago, and um, Israel is the most efficient country on earth in every hmm. single layer of its existence. It was it was just an absolute godforsaken desert when they got there in nineteen forty seven. And it is an oasis. They have unbelievable farming. They produce like half of the like citrus fruit all through Europe, uh, up in the Galilee. Um, uh, there was 500 million landmines or something like that at one point. The Syrians and Jordanians had put up there. They cleaned them all out. It's like Garden of Eden up there, right? They use every inch of their land. Uh, they are the most efficient fighting force on earth. By far. Yeah, and so even, and this is what's so sad about being manipulated, uh, the average Arab that lives in the Gaza Strip, 
being manipulated by these terrorists, Iran and ISIS and other groups using like-minded people that infiltrate into the Gaza Strip to attack Israel. You got to be an idiot to attack Israel. Absolutely. They'll fight you to the death. And here's the other thing. Israel is part of, Israel is part of NATO. They have full voting rights in the United Nations. We, we, are, we are by law obligated to defend them, both the United States and all of NATO, which includes Russia, by the way, which is bizarre, right? And Great Britain. So um, Israel will not be defeated. No, they, they, can, will, they can't. Will not be defeated, and they can't even afford the semblance of defeat. So even no. even if they hold off the attack, if they give the terrorist groups the opportunity to claim victory, that is going to embolden their enemies and threaten their existence as a state. You're absolutely right. The saddest thing for the for the innocent Arab that lives in the Gaza Strip, and that's and that's we'll have to qualify that at some future point, because at some point, whenever you live under under rule that is dominated by terrorism, you're not really innocent. And they, right? they were, so that's they were another, elect, yeah. That's, that's a, another moral principle. We'll, yeah. we'll leave that to the side. But this war isn't going to be about when they finally just end it, right? There's a ceasefire. They're just going to level this place. Yeah. They're going to surround it and isolate it. For decades, siege it, yeah. For decades, so they, they, it won't reemerge. That's what's going to happen, and yeah. not because they initiated it, but because Hamas and the strong men behind it were foolish. What, what, what are, again? What they th thinking? My my guess so, is we're so weak as a country. We have such a weak presidency. Where we have so much chaos, we don't have the Speaker of the House right now. That the time this has all. A lot to do with that timing. One can't help but wonder how things would be different if we still had a presence in Afghanistan. Oh, it would be totally different. But if we, um, even if we had a, a different foreign policy. Yeah, oh, absolutely. If, if we had the previous, and you know, I'm not even going to get into the thing about the merits of the two presidents, but the, they would have never gone near the previous president. No, that's, I think. Never. No, absolutely not. Not. Um, and the other piece, not to interrupt you, is <laughs> Americans think it's bad, right? We're not ready, but I, I see no reason between now and November of 2024 why China's not taking Taiwan. Absolutely not, especially in light of Russia, Ukraine, and, and with the brazenness of Hamas, I, and especially if the United States now gets pulled into moderating uh, and maintaining not peace, but preventing a broader conflict in the Middle East, there's there's really no reason why China wouldn't be emboldened to move against what, what Taiwan. Would we do, but what would we do? Well, exactly. What, there has been no precedent, no peace through strength demonstrated and in course, the last several years. You and I know this, right? And many of our listeners know this. Then Americans would be P-I-S-S-E-D. Now, all of a sudden, you can't get right. your microchips. Things are really expensive. Things are going to go now through we're, the roof. Now we're mad because now, I can't. Now I have principle. Yeah, all of, all of a sudden, it comes back. And I want to I tie that, that back in, right? Because for us, thinking Christians, we need to avoid the temptation of projecting our political priors onto global events uh, as, as we see them happen. We've seen it 
you know, Russia, Ukraine was a perfect example, right? All of a sudden, everybody's flying Ukrainian flags and Ukraine, which it was such a great country, which all of a sudden, which was an awful country when certain phone calls are being made between the president and Zelensky years before, all of a sudden is as white as the driven snow and could do absolutely no wrong, which again, you don't need to, you don't need to be given to a particular side in order to honestly engage with the fact that corruption is, is a central part of how Ukraine has operated. Absolutely. It's, you know, the reason why it's not a member of NATO, it's not a functioning country. Right. right. It was it's corrupt to the nth degree. There's it's uh, it's a tribal factionalism that's that exists within an artificial border. So so here here's the complexity and the nuance that as Christians, we, we need to make a diligent attempt to make to adopt is. It is it was wrong for Russia, a brutalist regime to advance against Ukraine as a sovereign nation, while at the same time, you can say that and not have to fly the Ukrainian flag from the front of your house. Yes. You don't have to, yes. you don't have to jump at the front of the parade as of saying Ukraine is this champion now of, of Western liberal values. Those two things aren't, aren't mutually exclusive. And so the same, the same intellectual discernment and nuance is also not to say that these conflicts are at all the same, but applied to Israel Hamas, where you can you can you can assert that you that there were atrocities committed against uh, an innocent people of by Hamas committing these terrorist acts against Israel, you can defend their right as a nation to defend themselves without having to give in to, say, a temptation to Christian dispensationalism, starting to wave the Israeli flag, and then now reading into verses of the Old Testament, such as, you know, like, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for the peace of Israel. All that to say, for all this time, we, we reading the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, would say Israel is the people of God, it isn't all of a sudden the Bible commanding us to pray specifically for the nation of Israel, which did not exist as a geopolitical entity prior to its canonization. So, hasn't existed since the uh, layers and our, layers our and French layers. French took them out three thousand years ago, right? So, I mean, for the listener, if that sounds like a lot, I mean that if it's because it is a lot, and it's because we we as thinking Christians need to hold ourselves, and it is a lot of work, to a standard of being patient and, and really challenging ourselves to think through all of the, the wrinkles that come with these global issues. Yeah, just for, uh, you know, I don't think all of our listening audience on the Catholic side would understand what evangelical dispensationalism even could is. Could you explain that? I think well, you do a better job than I dispensationalism could. Dispensationalism literally is an American invention primarily since the 1850s, but took steam up after the Civil War. And it's the view of, of what will be taking place sociopolitically in the second coming of Christ, and then the timing, this premillennial, postmillennial uh, evangelicals. And you really, literally cannot find it anywhere in Christian history. Not, not even the magisterial reformers ever talked about mm. these things, right? So the, the, the historic position of the church is it's amillennial. 
mm. that we already live in the end times, right? Because Jesus was born in the fullness of time, mm. brought forth, right? And um, and the new Israel isn't a piece of land, piece of what was useless land until the modern folks got there and turned it into, you know, a productive piece of sand. Uh, the new Israel is the church. It's it's exactly it's the bride of Christ. It's not it's not anywhere on earth. It's not a piece of land in the Middle East, right? It's and that's it's impossible because of the incarnation, right? Right. That we're not closer to God or Jesus in any location, right? Because Jesus is omnipotent and omnipresent, and it's like the real presence in the sacraments. There is presence in a cave in Afghanistan as they are in Canterbury Cathedral, right? Because that's how God works. Yes. And that's the point of, of the Christian message. And so you're right. So when you have, you'll have thousands of evangelical preachers talking about how this is all tied to the end times and dispensational, different dispensationalist theologies. And many more contradict each other because they're not, there's no such thing as one dispensationalist presentation. And that, that modern Israel is the, the key to all this. Because modern Israel is an utterly secular state. <laughs> it's not, it's, America is far more religious than Israel. The, the overwhelming majority of people who live in Israel, Arabs and Jews, are not religious. Mm. Like, so if you took like a, a poll, like how many Americans go to church on a Sunday, it wouldn't be close. Americans are, Americans are the most religious people in the Western Hemisphere, even though we're in massive decline. Israel, like Tel Aviv, the modern state, it's like it's it's got more to do with Rotterdam than it. Yeah, it's more more like a Silicon Valley. Yeah, than it has you know the old city. People think of Jerusalem, they're thinking of Jerusalem, quartered into the four parts, right? It's like a misconception of what Israel or, or the Wailing Wall, because that's all they ever see, is mm -hmm. these competing rabbis with a bunch of Arabs on top of the Wailing Wall with their gun, with mm -hmm. their guns, right? Um, they don't really understand what modern Israel. Uh, really is, and so it's um, again. You can't have conversations without productive conversations that could possibly lead to solution. If you you can't even deal with historic reality and what actually is going on in the world, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know ten people I even associated with can even have this conversation. That's pretty yeah, sad. It's very, it's very limited. Yeah, and as Joshua said, that's why I'm just a complete weirdo because actually yeah. <laughs> you actually can talk about something from historical perspective. So um, this is not going to be pretty. This thing with us, we don't. By the time this thing airs, a month from now, six weeks from now, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of gallons of water are going to go to the bridge. So yeah. Um, there could be a bunch of dominoes fall, but America, with probably Britain having to get behind it, it, it better stop it quick. Right. Because, the, you know, it's a powder keg. You can't empower Putin any more than he already is. And the Chinese will do that, but they'll do it in their subtle, fake, disingenuous, you know, uh, deceiving way um, while they keep producing fentanyl that comes across our southern border. So, um, it's just a mess. It's a little mess. But it goes back to our weakness as a country, our moral, our, our moral decay and the collapse of the family, which has led to all this tribalism politically, 
and then our, our debtedness. Just, just two weeks ago, for the first time, uh, and the American, not that we ever pass a budget, we haven't passed a real budget in 35 years, but $1 trillion a year, we just flipped it last week, will go to just service the debt, interest wow. on the debt. And again, Americans, like, uh, like when the president talks about he's lower the debt, anybody who ever buys into that should just go away. Right? We never ever lower the debt. It just slow, it might slow the rate of the debt at some point, right? So yeah. America brings in about $4.5 trillion in tax money a year, which funds the government. One trillion of it next year, well, right now, beginning right now, will just go to service the interest on the debt. Right, not even the principal. One quarter of every tax dollar that comes in just services the interest on the debt. It cripples us. And it, it cripples, and it's just going to go up and, and up, especially and up because and up. you have to keep interest rates high in order yeah. to control the inflation. Right, as it's, a result of the it's limitless just spending. Horrible government, both parties. Horrible government that isn't about the common good. It's not about the future. It's not about our children and our welfare. It's like the school systems. It's about the kids. It's all no, it's not. We're just ruining our children yeah. <laughs> and the school systems. Right? If, uh, if Christians ever needed more reminders why we don't put our faith in government to begin with. Right. And it's, and, and yeah, and it's like, that's why I'm not a political ideologue about parties. It's like, I mean, I have, my my instincts are in a certain direction. I, w I wouldn't ever deny that, but it's, um, both parties just play footsies with all this stuff. That's all they They're do. not interested in, in ever solving the problem, either side. They're just about regaining power and so that's where all this political money goes it's like black matter in space <laughs> yeah where it's, does like, it it's go? like a black hole like where does it go right yeah and so you know we we're so powerful america is so powerful I, all the times i've taught civics at every level of my experience as an educator as a clergyman the average american just doesn't even understand how powerful of the country we are, and that when we're weak and we're doing really stupid things, it has cause and effect on the rest of the world, and human rights get destroyed when mm. we're weak, right? To whom much is given, much is expected. Mm. And never in the course of human events has more been given to anybody than the United States of America. And we're squandering it. Yeah, big time. And, and that's the Judeo-moral issue. Yeah. It's a matter of stewardship. Which I don't know very many clergy that would have, put whatever word you on, mine wouldn't be a very good one. So whatever you word in there, they don't have it to even tell their own people the truth about what really, what's really going on in the world. And so, so they want to reduce this, this Palestinian-Israeli conflict to some easy answer. Yeah. A t it's a two-state answer. Yeah, they want it to be simple. It's, yeah. Two-state answer. It's like that, the two-state thing will never work. So it's not an answer because they can't, they could never be self-sufficient as a state. That, and it also uh, waters down the the ideological differences between the worldviews, which is another, another topic I wanted to bring up briefly here is how uh, world events such as these lay bare the the inherent incoherence of a of a moral relativist worldview, the whole coexist bumper sticker oh. on the back of the car. We know how much you, you love these love bumper it. stickers, They're Mark. Awesome. 
where I just had a mural painted in my you've bedroom. Got coexist, and you've got the Jesus <laughs> fish and the Star of David, and and um, that's why I wear all these pins of my jacket. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got the you've got the crescent on there and of course one one of those religions wants to see all of the others uh, annihilated yeah and so you can't you can't coexist and you can't you can't attribute a western frame of of radical individualist moral relativist thinking to people who will say to your face no actually we we want we want the infidels to be erased from the face of the earth. Isn't the ultimate question? I, I think we've talked about it. I remember in your theological formation, even five years ago, is that um, Sharia law can't exist in Western constitutional law. It can't exist. It, it's incompatible to freedom, right? And so uh, France wouldn't deal with it. No. They're paying the price. England wouldn't deal with it. They're paying the price big time, right? And here we go down the same road. Mm -hmm. uh, Michigan, Detroit, uh, Muslims have a working minority in the city council, right? So there's entire sections of Detroit. It just off limits. It just the cops don't like you're just free to practice Sharia law in there. Nobody's going to bother you, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have you know these the progressives in, in Congress yakking about human rights and women's rights and all this stuff. And meanwhile. They support. They they support the in, yeah. in, in action of this. You know, parts of Virginia have it. You know, it's just like, <laughs> what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Right? You're gonna. Yeah. It, it, it's inevitable a conflict. It used to I used to say geographically between east and west, right? Uh, Islam, and the the free the free west. But now it's not geographical; they're so intermingled. Yeah. Because of open borders in Europe, open borders everywhere, it's it's kind of like what's happening in the United States with the political divide between red and blue, you know. And you you guys have heard it right all the time. We're we're going to have another civil war. Oh yeah. We're not going to have it. There's no. You can't have a geographical civil war because we're not divided it's geographically. A, right. We're divided ideologically in different pockets. So, um, you know, we, we, really what we're going to find is ourselves dividing into these federalist districts that live separate lives from each other. And, and in the lawless of society, really just ignore the Constitution inside those federalist districts. Yeah. That's, what's, that's where we're headed yeah. in, as a people. So I, I want to kind of recap by laying out the, the progression of these ideas. So you have... I would say uh, you, the moral decay of the post-Christian West, Western culture really being grounded in Judeo-Christian values, that moral decay is in large part due to a moral relativism that eschews absolute truth as revealed by God in Scripture and through the Ten Commandments. So you've got a moral relativism that then asserts You've got my truth, you've got your truth, who's to say what's right? That expands out more broadly to a cultural relativism, where now, because you can't say what's true and what's false, all cultures have to be treated equally, too. Oh, yeah. Which is totally contrary to the very reasons that Western culture was so successful to begin with, because it was able to, able to promulgate Judeo-Christian values large scale you know, again 
with with qualifications to be said as to you know how faithful as a culture we were um, religiously, but that's beside the point. So you have you have moral relativism leading to cultural relativism, which says all cultures are equal, and now you have cultures pitted against each other, which are very much not equal to one another. You've got you've got cultures and traditions which are espoused by terrorist groups, which will say, I want you wiped off the face of the earth, but a blind post-Christian West doesn't have the moral categories to be able to engage with that. So when someone tells you, I value death, I want you dead, we can't coexist, we would ask ourselves, well, what do they really mean? There's no way they could possibly mean that. They must have been wronged. They must have been right. oppressed in some way. Let's let's try to bargain with you to see how that works. And all that ends up in is bloodshed and tragedy. And you and you multiply that calamity because you've torn down your borders. Because why have borders if it's all the same? And there's really no reason to delineate between one culture and the next. Right, as if the Ottoman Empire never existed. Yes. Right. Uh, it was such a great place, the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, this this inability of of you know, I, I, I is it a majority of Americans? I don't know that really don't understand that you can't be a country without a sovereign border. Absolutely not. You you can't be it. You you'll, you cease to exist within a generation of what you were, and and again, constitutional law. You can't have law and order. You, 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 that's against the law right now. The open border is against the law, yeah. right? And um, and literally, you know, you have people just, they, they won't even admit what's going on, that te- whatever thousands a day cross across, across there and somehow it's good and or, or just one of the minutes even happening, it's like, oh my gosh. It's, uh, so to, to pull that thread even further, because we open this up talking about first principles, right, Christians, we need to be able to return to that. The principle behind it is it's it simply isn't loving to open up your borders to any Joe Schmo who wants to come in without any requirements put upon them, because you're going to be opening up your your borders to people who either openly want to harm you or, and this far, far more frequently than this, you're opening it up to people who you're unable to care for. So it's really not loving because you're just welcoming welcoming them into a situation of perpetual poverty to crime to sickness because you are you are incapable of caring for them. So it's not loving, and there's a strong parallel to that uh, within within the church within the liturgical traditions when we oh. talk about communion. Oh, absolutely. And you and I read uh, I can't remember who wrote it, but there was an excellent article about the parallels between the importance of of borders uh, as applied to the Holy Eucharist, where the church, if she is faithful, she's not just going to allow any old person to receive Holy Communion. You need to be, as as we would uh, say in our, our Anglican, our independently Anglican tradition, our congregation, that you have to be baptized in a biblically Orthodox church in order to receive the Eucharist. And why is that? Well, because, as Scripture tells us, if if you are not uh, in a state of grace, and you are not of the the 
proper disposition before God when you receive the sacraments, right. you, re you receive it to your condemnation. Yes. So it is not, it is the opposite of loving to give Holy Communion to people who are not prepared to receive it. Completely. And so that's where you see the parallel. So it's true of every sacrament, right? So that's why the borders to marriage, there's borders to marriage. Yes. Only, only biological males and females can be married, right? Because of of the natural order from creation, as Jesus said, right? And uh, the purpose of what purpose of what marriage is. And so when you change the borders of marriage, blessings, or however it's declared in uh, same-sex unions by uh, the secular law, you're, you're, you're signing your own genocide, right? Absolutely. Because only males and females can reproduce. Right, our birth rate in America just went under two for the first time yes. ever. So, so, um, and I I was reading at twenty fifty the amount of Americans who even get married will be thirty to thirty five percent of America. That's not Judeo Christian marriage, just married, just any period. Yeah, I believe right? it. And so the birth rate they're predicting for a large segments of females, it was almost a third, will be zero. See, so you so you have open borders. You have you 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 do not reproduce. At least the current homogeneous population of America does not reproduce, and yet you keep spending more money. You're already spending a trillion dollars of service interest on your debt, uh, but you're not going to have future generations of children. Who's going to even pay taxes? Right, right. It's it, it's it's the it's it's the same thing as the fall of the Roman Empire. It will collapse. And it won't collapse, it will collapse faster and faster and faster mm. with the rapidity is going to just really pick up. Uh, there's not enough people, there's not enough money, uh, more demand on resources. And of course, while you're alive, the average person doesn't give a poop because they're, they're, you know, grandma's getting her stuff. That They don't care about what's coming after them because they're not rooted in a value system that cares about love their neighbor as themselves in the first place. Nope. So... Every empire declines that abandons God and the family, and we're the same. And it's, you, you can't fix it. Once it starts, you can't change the tide. No. And, and again, you can't get elected to Congress saying that. <laughs> no, that doesn't work very you well. You can't get elected to Congress. This is the economic, economics. Uh, you know, I, I taught this civics course um, earlier this year. And these are these like the least interested people. These are like, libertarians, Trumpy types, uh, clean government types, and they asked me to teach this course, and, and they weren't, they didn't, uh, they weren't completely, not even close to being educated in the Constitution themselves, but they they, they deal in their own sound bites, mm -hmm. right? And um, so even the people who are concerned don't really grasp the ultimate problem America is we're economically collapsing, right? We're just totally economically collapsing, you know. And remember, I don't know, you guys are too young, but Al, when Al Gore was running for president in 2000 against Bush, they were arguing Social Security, and he goes, well, all the money when I'm president for Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare goes into a lockbox. Mm -hmm. Do you remember this? You ever hear that? As if, no. it, as if there's you, a box you can you put money to... in. And I sit in there, I was teaching, I go, you know, I go, the Fed can't do that. And it, 
women goes after me, I go, because the Fed doesn't have any money at all. <laughs> I go, they don't produce goods and services. They just print money, right? And then they pretend they put it somewhere for you, which just devalues your dollar, which means you can't buy anything. Inflation goes up. Then the whole cycle keeps going and going and going. And it's just, again, the, the basic economics, the average person just can't grasp it. Oh, they don't want to. I don't know. I can, maybe you can give me a better answer to that. They, yeah, I think they either either you can't grasp it or you're given to your political priors and you you don't believe these things to be true or you or you refuse to engage with what the economic realities are and or or you don't care. And I think I think for the most part people just don't care because well, they're getting they're largely getting what well, they God want. Well, people don't care about them. They only care about yeah. the immediate. It's immediate gratification. It's like an addiction to alcohol or drugs or sex or porn or whatever. It's about immediate gratification. And and that's what dominates most people's lives is yeah. immediate economic gratification or eating chocolate or whatever. Like Germany and in England are in massive massive then demographic they, they will not exist in 50 years and people go oh you oh, you you're just making that up i'm like no <laughs> you know you, or or even if you, they even if they still exist in name well they'll exist in name but they but but demographically it's going to be a totally different place there won't yeah there won't be any they literally won't be any Caucasian Europeans living in those yeah. countries because they're just never going to be born. Uh, which, which to tie it back into our earlier conversation, the the issue with that is not about race. It's about the inequality of cultures. And so you either believe that Western civilization was the greatest vehicle of human flourishing or it's not. So, of course, if all cultures are equal, then that's fine. But then all of a sudden things fall apart and why is this happening? But it's not, it's not a racist thing. It's not because you think less of people of different ethnicities. It's because when you're importing other cultures without any sort of rubric, then eventually your own moral system is going to be overrun. Oh, absolutely. And, and because the the most baffling thing is and, and for a historian is where has Marxism ever worked? Hmm. Just, How's Mar Venezuela doing? Real Marxism hasn't been tried. How's Central America doing? How's South America doing, right? Cuba's been a paradise for 65 years, right? The Soviet Union didn't work, right? China doesn't work. China's in worse economic shape than the United States of America, right? Um the real, probably the real third leg threat, because it's a democracy, is India, mm. who has more people than China. Yeah. And down the road, you know, I, I don't think I'll be alive. I wouldn't be surprised if India is the world power. I think so. I think they've, I think they've positioned themselves because... China is going to collapse demographically the same way that the West is. And so right. China yeah, India needs is, more people. And it's really, you know, really interesting because I think outside of, and I was, I won't pretend to be one of these people as outside from a very few. I don't think anybody observing world events ever would have predicted that. No. Um, so it is, you know, it's endlessly fast. Well, but it also tells you that colonialism wasn't all, ne colonialism wasn't all negative, was it? 
No, I mean a lot of a lot of what they have in place is because of virtually the virtually all of it. institutions that the British uh, put in place. Right, right. So there's all this yeah. irony and twist there's of history. A lot, a lot of irony there. Right, that um, you you could be the world power in 75 years because of colonialism. Why did I do that? I don't know. I guess if, I mean, if people are tired of listening to you, then we can, yeah. we can pull the mic so, away. It's so complex, right? And uh, so this Hamas-Israel thing and uh, the Russian-Ukraine thing is, um, you know, here's an analogy. Tell me how wrong this is. I, I, you guys were not long from being born, but when I was first in grad school, uh, the great Ethiopian famine was going on. I don't know if you remember uh, Michael Jackson, they all saying, we are the world. It was this Heard song. the song. Right. And so typical emotional, emotive response to this problem, right? So they got like, you know, the most famous people together, and Jackson writes this song and it goes hit and all the money was supposed to go solve all of the um, famine problems in, in Central Africa and so forth. And of course, most of it went to the black market, the food all rotted on the docks, and uh, mm -hmm. after two weeks, Americans forgot all about it. Mm -hmm. It's like waving our flags after 9-11. That lasted like 11 days, yeah. and then we went back to it. Um, I, he's long deceased now, and a moral theology professor was talking about famine in Africa and an Indian subcontinent. And he says, um, I'm gonna, he goes, and this was, this was a forum we held each year at Providence College, speakers would come in, hundreds of people there, right? And, and he says, uh, I'll leave his name out, but he says, um, you know what the best thing we could probably do for the Indian subcontinent, Central Africa, people who you know practice Hinduism and worship cows as deities and eat the grassland and turn everything into desert, is just let, it, let market forces take their, hmm. take their course for two or three generations and maybe they'll realize that's not a good idea. Hmm. And I'm not sure that's not the solution because we can't fix all these problems. No. And the solution is, you know, and you've heard me, you know, eat your stew for a while and see mm -hmm. how it goes, right? It's like this thing with Russia taking, you know, eventually they're not, they're not, they're not Russia's a mess, right? So they'll get, the whole time they wanted, they wanted free access to the Crimea. That's what this is about, mm -hmm. right? They want to get, be able to go right to the ocean and do their stuff, right? So they'll end up with a third of that land or whatever. But they're only a country of 140 million people, Russia. They have, they have one of the lowest birth rates in the world. They have the ab highest abortion rate in the world. Their GDP is the size of Florida. Florida, right. They're never going to be able to rebuild uh, Ukraine back to what it would take. Putin would be dead four times before. Yeah. So sometimes that's the answer. Now, that would all make a lot more sense if we had our you-know-what together in the United States of America, but we don't. Mm. We don't. We, we can't even get ourselves together, never mind fix all these world problems. Yeah. And so, um, but that's a, harsh, that's, that's a harsh reality, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. Difficult, difficult things to think about because uh, there is a, an inherent instinct in the West to want to say, well, well, no, it's it, it's unloving if we don't try to impose ourselves and and fix everything that's wrong uh, in the world. When again, when you're talking about nation states, your primary responsibility is to yourselves first, and then to be stewards beyond that. But 
Yeah, you can't, it's just like the problem of sin, the side of the veil of tears, you're not going to fix it all. And the best way to evangelize is to live by example. So the best way for America to share the benefits of constitutional democracy is to live it. When we've tried to export American form of the Republic, where has it worked? Nowhere, really. It hasn't. So why has the mo- why is the most successful form of government and the most successful form of free enterprise in human history not, why isn't it able to be exported? Mm. That's a great question. Right. So, and, it's, and it's not because it's obviously not the most effective form, it, right? This is a, this group of little 13 tiny colonies that have become the greatest empire in the history of the world, right? And so... The, the answer is you can't make anybody do anything. They have to want to do those mm. things, right? That, that's true of our moral lives. It's true of the civic life too. And so um, we never seem to learn that lesson though. No, no, we don't. I think so. And that's a good segue to really tie it all back together. How do we, how do we think about the conglomeration of world events and when especially in the face of war in the face of brutality you have to it always comes back to eschatology and that is the impulse to nation building to trying to solve everyone's problems it's a built-in eschatology to a, a secular post-christian west now for the listeners right a, a reminder when we talk about eschatology we are talking about study and thinking about the end times, about death, about judgment, how the world's going to end, and and the afterlife. And so for us, here on Lively Faith, for all of our our faithful listeners, is that the only way that we can have this conversation and engage with world events without totally losing our minds, without losing our peace and giving in to despair, is through uh, the Christian faith, through an understanding of Christian eschatology. And so what do I mean by that? I, I jotted down a few notes here. Of course, when we, like you said, there's nothing new under the sun. And Jesus himself warned us that there would be wars and rumors of wars before he came again. And that paired with a, an understanding of uh, the book of Revelation not to get into how one might interpret the book of Revelation, but uh, all can agree that things are going to get worse from a world events perspective than they're going to get better, that is, through the second coming of Christ. Yes, right. And eschatology, proper eschatology, is hinges on the ultimate fallacy that happens in our culture. Right, so if you you guys ask your colleagues, you know, your age bracket, whatever people you've known, you say, "Are we, uh, we as humans, are we by nature, basically good or not good?" And of course, the answer would be, "Oh, well, we're basically good. We're good, right?" And and that means your eschatology is going to be wrong, mm-hmm. right? Because if we're na- by nature good, that means it's like the whole fallacy of science is always leading to the betterment of mm-hmm. humanity, which is a fallacy. It's a fallacy because, because human nature isn't good by nature. You have to mm. choose to cooperate with God's will. Mm. Right? And so eschatology is your understanding of eschatology is going to be based on your understanding of human nature. 
if human nature, if humans are by nature inherently good and not given to evil, then it is incumbent upon ourselves to save ourselves. But the reality is that because human nature is, is inclined to sin, we are incapable of saving ourselves, which means you need a savior extrinsic yes. to the curse of sin in order to save us. And that is exactly the behind every single conflict of ideas that we've talked about, every single literal conflict, is, is the conflict of those to eschatologies. Right. And it goes back to very profoundly what you said early in this conversation many times with me about um, all cultures unequal. Right. right. There's no original sin in Islam. Right. There's no original sin in Judaism. Right. That, that, that People don't like that. Oh, yes, it is. It's in, it's in the book of Genesis. Yes, but original sin is, is Pauline. Yeah. It's Pauline. It's Paul. It's the one who defined originally said it's not part of Jewish thought, right? So, so the of the three monotheistic religions, two don't believe in original sin, which means your understanding of human nature is distorted. And you can see, especially with Islam, how distorted it gets, mm-hmm. right? So therefore, because you're you're by good and you're doing God's will, I won't mention the name. Um, therefore, you can justify your behavior, and your mode of operation to achieve your ends, mm-hmm. right? Which, again, is incompatible to Christian understanding of theology and the incarnation and all of the other things that come systematic with Christianity. Mm-hmm. This Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism, and Jesus is the Son of God. There is no more revelation besides Jesus. So, therefore, anything that claims to be revelation and of divine origin outside of Jesus is false, It's false. It's a false ideology, which leads to false everything else, right? And the problem is, is most Christians don't believe that, which means they're not really Christians, and they won't even admit that, that that's even the premise of Christianity in the first place. And so that's where we find ourselves in Western culture. Absolutely. That really hits the nail on the head there. So uh, to put it another way, if if you have your your sense of human nature messed up, if you've got a false understanding of human nature, then your your salvation, your inclination to salvation is going to be in search of an earthly utopia and trying to make everything perfect and right bizarre, here and now. A bizarre Pelagianism, and, right? Yeah, and, yeah. It, and that would get applied in all sorts of different arenas, be it political or environmental or socioeconomic, but you see it playing out uh, between uh, nations here where you you may be inclined to say that, well, the only way we are going to achieve peace in our time is either to, uh, to eliminate this nation or to get rid of all the terrorists or for democracy to be taken up by every single nation across the world which we've just demonstrated is never going to happen, versus, and then again, you can apply that to, oh, well, actually, we need to save the planet from environmental disruption or or disaster, versus our hope is in the second coming of Jesus Christ. We know that not that we give up on 
trying to love our neighbor as ourselves and steward the environment and being charitable to everybody, but that our problems, the problem of sin is not going to go away until Christ comes again. Not at all. And that's where our hope is. And that is what protects us from losing our hope and from falling into despair, no matter how badly world events spiral out of control. I've been asked, you know, more than I can count. What's, what, what's the solution? The Great Commission is the solution. Mm-hmm. That's what will change the world. It's the Great Commission. Because when, when if, if every heart was converted to Christ, Hamas wouldn't be attacking Israel. Right. Russia would not have invaded Ukraine. Right? All these things, all, all, all the atrocities that we, we can speak about wouldn't have happened if there true, is truly conversion. Right? If Jesus is literally Lord of the, of, the, of the world, it would be a different place. But um, even God himself knows that's not going. Our job is to preach the gospel as many are willing to listen. But he's coming back again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end, and he'll, he'll separate goats from sheep. So there's clearly yes. going to be a differentiation going on in the second coming. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Right. And so we... While the state has a responsibility to bear the sword, we as individuals need not get all worked up as to how we're possibly going to exact perfect justice, because that is God's responsibility. Absolutely. I agree. Yep. So to wrap things up, I want to conclude with a passage from Paul's letter to the Romans, which I thought was appropriate and very much encouraging in light of everything that is going on uh, with global conflict and who knows what is going to be happening when this episode releases. Paul quotes Psalm 44, mm-hmm. 22 in chapter 8 of his letter to the Romans when he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. How true. And with that, we will conclude today's conversation. Uh, Certainly days more worth of discussion to be had, but I thank you as always for joining me. Thank you, dear listeners, for thinking these difficult issues through with us. And if you're interested in more great conversations, please subscribe to our podcast. Please share it with a friend. If you've been blessed by this conversation today, we cannot grow without your help and by God's grace. We look forward to seeing you next time. God bless.